Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Jesse Proudman. Jesse is the co-founder and CEO of Makara, a new investment platform democratizing access to the cryptocurrency markets and the co-founder of Strix Leviathan, a crypto investment manager powered by a sophisticated proprietary trading platform. Prior to Strix Leviathan and Makara, Jesse founded Bluebox, a cloud computing startup that he led to a successful acquisition by IBM. During his time at IBM as an IBM Distinguished Engineer, Jesse focused on blockchain technology and cryptocurrency applications. With more than two decades of experience as a technical entrepreneur, Jesse serves on the board for the Burke Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Washington and the Strix Leviathan Nest Fund Investment Committee. Jesse earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Puget Sound and is currently based in Seattle with his family. Welcome, Jesse. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, we're going to start with some rapid fire. Okay. Um, first things first, favorite cuisine? Uh, Asian food. I love. What kind specifically? Like anything? Chinese, yeah, Japanese? Sushi is probably the top of the list, but uh, all of it is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Are you mountains or ocean? Or ocean. Lake, I guess, ocean. Absolutely. Um, what is the best thing that you have read or listened to or watched recently? Oh, I just finished a book called uh, The Hail Mary, uh, which is a, by the author from The Martian, uh, that, uh, that sci-fi movie. Just a, a phenomenal sort of science fiction. I, I have read mostly uh, nonfiction for the last couple of years, and so this is my foray back into fiction. It's just been so enjoyable to go to a different headspace. Yeah, I love hearing what people are reading. Um, what are three words that you would use to describe your leadership style? Oh, that's interesting. Um, oh, that's a, that's a tough one. It is tough because people are like, well, reality or aspirational? You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the, the reality side, it's probably, you know, intense, energetic, uh, and, and distracted to some extent. <laughs> To some extent, most of the mm. most entrepreneurs are right. A little distracted, <laughs> That's right. like squirrel, right? And that makes sense. But you know what? High energy and uh, intense also usually comes along with entrepreneurship. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite way to spend time with your two kids? I like being in nature. So we we have a boat, uh, and some of my favorite experiences with them have been just out exploring, doing something away from people, away from the the house. Uh, away from electronics. It's yeah. just nice to, to get out and be in nature. Yeah. And is your wife co-captain well? I feel like that's like a whole other part of the job. She she does. Yeah. Although we, we had that debate this year. She I think we have different enjoyment levels uh, on, on the boat. So uh, fortunately, my brother-in-law has, has done a great job stepping up uh, to help fill in the, yeah. the first mate duties. 
But I'm guessing that anybody who's with you or married to you or even a close friend in any sort of significant way would have to be kind of into boating if that's your passion, right? That's, that's, that's your happy place. Yep. That is my happy place. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, tell me, what's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, my biggest pet peeve. I'm like, peeve. that's the Debbie Downer question. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's people not having patience. Uh, you know, I think everybody has sort of their own struggle they go through and there's this expectation that, uh, that everything's perfect for folks all the time. This has been really evident. This is the first kind of consumer app or consumer business uh, I've built and things like app store reviews. Uh, yeah, I read them. I actually read them in preparation. You have really good reviews. And then some of the ones that are, are like, um, just a result of being early in the, in the build of the business. Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, this is just kind of how it is. These are natural things, but you guys were really quick and very positive in your response. I was impressed. Yeah. You know, I, I really want to satisfy everybody. It's like, yep. The things you're talking about, uh, I very much want to see us as well. Um, it's just, it's surprising me. It's like I, people forget that there's humans on the other side of, uh, of the screen and, uh, it's so much easier to just be negative and, and a downer yeah. in, in digital format. That's interesting. Has it impacted the way that you deal with people on the other end when you're the consumer? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's, you know, it's, it's uh, actually been an interesting lesson. We've talked a lot about it at dinner uh, with, the, with the kids. Like, just always remember there's somebody else uh, and then the receiving end of, of what you're talking about. Totally. That's so true. Okay. So if you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Oh, you know, I think it would be not having to sleep. Uh, you know, time is time is the most valuable resource and uh, there's, there's so much I would like to do or be able to go explore and being yeah. exhausted, <laughs> being exhausted. I know both of us are both, so what would you do if you had an extra day or, you know, what would you get up early to do or go to bed late to do? Uh, you know, I, I know this is, it, as an entrepreneur, there's this constant challenge between uh, the business, your personal health, your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your family. And um, it's just, constant juggling act uh, but between taking care of all of those and um, it always feels like there's sort of some plate being dropped so uh, yeah a little extra time with, with of course and I always feel like you slightly suck at everything yeah yeah and I I totally get that so where did you where did you first get this kind of bug um were you kind of a mini entrepreneur as a kid yeah so my first company I started when I was 13 and my folks said I wanted to go buy a a Walkman, like a tape player Walkman, or oh, it was a CD Walkman. I remember it back, right? Okay. You're like, you're not young enough, or, or I guess you're old enough. You're not old enough for like a tape Walkman. I'm older than you. Yeah. So, so I want to get this CD disc man. And folks are like, nope, you got to go get a job. So I'm looking through the newspaper, like at the orange or at the classifieds, and there's the orange Julius listing. I'm like, I really don't really want to work at the mall. Uh, and at, at that point in time, this was, um, so this has been 96, 97, 95, somewhere in there. Uh, the web was sort of just becoming a, a thing. And I recognized there was an opportunity to go build websites. Uh, so I hopped on my bike and pedaled around town. I think I went to the dentist office first and sold them a website. Here we are now. Uh, so you just walked in later. and were like, I'll figure it out. So, hey, dentist, let me build you a website. Yep. And how did you figure it out? Who taught you? Nope, nobody. I mean, that's, you know, I, I think I am an experiential learner. And that's the one thing I've really come to recognize about myself over the, over the last 37 years and just getting hands on and, and figuring it out uh, is, is the best possible way for me to pick up something new. So uh, away we went. Wow. And did you have anyone um, guiding you? I guess, like, what were your parents into and, and what was your childhood like other than being an experience, experiential learner? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, mom's a public defender. Uh, parents are separated. My dad's an entrepreneur and doing diversity consulting. So he, oh. he did run his own business. And so I uh, watched that growing up, but very different industry. Uh, and, and both of them were certainly not into technology. So uh, yeah. it's, it's always been a curiosity about how I ended up uh, so focused in, in this specific industry. Yeah. But you didn't study computer science in school. You ended up going to UPS. Did you grow up in Seattle? I did. I, yeah, I actually grew up in Tacoma, uh, two blocks from, from campus there. Yeah. Um, so I, I went to the business program. It's called the Business Leadership Program at UPS, sort of a 40-person uh, higher intensity, single cohort business program. It was great. Um, I dabbled in computer science classes. But again, I think this is my problem, right? It's like having somebody tell me how to do these things versus being able to just go put hands on uh, night and day difference for me. So I think I yeah. took two, two and then ended up dropping dropping that minor and focused solely on the business degree. And I was running Blue Box, the prior company, I was running that through college. Were you into school? Like, were you a good student? Because I find that I'm interviewing these entrepreneurs in summer, kind of like on this very clear path, but most are not. And I love interviewing from the perspective of, um, you know, who's listening? I'm not really sure. Is it kids who are feeling frustrated that they're not doing great in school and then they hear from someone like you who might also have been like not into school I don't know maybe you were into school yeah no I it's that experiential education piece I struggled uh with with school throughout uh, sort of my my entire educational experience uh, you know I, I did well enough uh, certainly decent grades uh but it was never it was never interesting uh sort of classroom learning is not my style and have really struggled with the busy work uh, that is so prevalent in, in a lot of education and, uh, you know, in hindsight, sort of persisting through definitely gave me the grit it takes to be an entrepreneur. Like You can't just give up when things aren't, aren't enjoyable or you never make it anywhere here. Um, yeah. But from an educational perspective, that, that was always the frustration. It's kind of, it's interesting now watching my son, he's, he's going through some of the same yeah, challenges. But I was going to ask you, like, how that translates as a as a dad, because we all get so focused on like results, and I mean, I don't know if you do, but sometimes it's it's your kids are young still, but when your kids start to get older, and you're like, just figure out the system and just do what you got to do to like get your good grades, it's probably not the right message. It probably should be like, stay curious and continue to um, ask questions and disrupt. Yeah, well, that's the that's the hardest part. It's like again, kind of thinking through the if time is the most valuable resource, uh, certainly education is incredibly valuable, but when my son comes home and says he's bored at school all day and they're teaching him things that he knew from last year, like that's such a frustrating feeling. Um, and so part of it's trying to advocate for, for him to go find uh, or, or ask for more uh, intense uh, lessons or, or whatever it is, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. And it's just ironic to see uh, sort of the same tendencies uh, that, that you recognize in yourself manifest themselves in, in your kids. Oh, totally. And how would you have described or your friends have described you in like middle school? I was the nerd in middle school. Oh, you were uh, the nerd. Yeah. Uh, I, I was working. So that, that sort of uh, bike website experience that was right around the, the beginning of middle school. And, wow. and so I spent a lot of my time uh, either building websites or I was part of the sort of the, the computer lab um, at, at the school itself. So spent time working with with the broader IT team uh, in schools. But yeah, I was I was not the popular kid. I was I was the nerd. 
<laughs> yeah. And it's like actually the nerdy or whatever quote unquote kids are the ones who are probably going to be continuing to push themselves and do things. So tell me about your entrepreneurial endeavor. You start, you said that you started Blue Box. How old were you when you started Blue Box? Yeah. So the, the very first company I started was, uh, was in junior high and I ran that company sort of through junior high into, into high school and right at the end of high school, uh, that was a partnership with, with a, another couple partners. Uh, by the end of high school, that partnership had devolved into just two of us. And it just wasn't, it wasn't going super well. Uh, you know, I think uh, my business partner and I had differences of opinions on how to pay your bills. I was a big believer in pay the bills first. And, you know, I think he was a believer in take a paycheck first. And at some point, those styles start to conflict. And when you can't pay your bills, uh, and the, the finances don't look particularly great, uh, it can create a lot of tension. So uh, right as I was beginning uh, college, freshman year of college, uh, effectively decided to, to leave that company in part ways. Uh, he, the, the previous uh, partner took the majority of the assets. I took a small uh, subsection of the clients and the chunk of the debt and said, all right, I'll, I'll just go do this again, uh, sort of on my own. And that was the genesis for, for Blue Box. Um, wow. So it's, it's kind of funny. You know, so many, so many people start their businesses with some uh, great idea or spark. Um, I started my business knowing that I just owed a bunch of money and I needed a way to pay it off. Yeah. Uh, and so Blue Box effectively started as a, as a web development company. Uh, and then we were, we were running hosting for the sites that we built. So we'd go uh, sell a project and then we'd run the, the infrastructure for it. Wow. And how did, did you have lots of competitors? I mean, it's such a competitive space. Yeah, it it. Re- it really is. I mean, it's become even more so now. Yeah. Uh, and, and certainly with the rise of Amazon, um, I think building a similar business today would be near impossible. Totally. Uh, but, and how did, but, Jesse, how did you guys fund it? And did you, so you didn't have any business partners? No, I, when I started Blue Box, it was just myself. Uh, and I, I funded it using any and every mechanism of non-dilutive funding you can come up with. So uh, my credit cards was a, a big one. Uh, I borrowed money from family. I borrowed money from uh, my fiance at the time, who's now my wife. Uh, I this was in the middle of, of kind of the last housing bubble, so I was able to take home equity loans on on my house. <laughs> I got a, SBA loans. Like literally, if you name a source of funding, I, I probably used it yeah. outside of outside of venture fund uh, funding. And your uh, risk profile is like great. I mean, someone who's willing to do that, obviously, you're like the true entrepreneur. <laughs> And you believed yeah. in your idea. You knew you had something. Yeah, I mean, sort of. Like at at the beginning, you know, I think a big part of it was uh, it's sort of like this this debt uh, this debt circus or debt wheel. Like you 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 start raising money to to build a venture, and then there's this desire to to make sure you can pay that that money back. And so you just got to kind of figure out how to make it work. Uh, you know, and at the beginning, sort of all of the debt was personally guaranteed, uh, and so you know the the first two hundred fifty thousand dollars of of debt I guaranteed against the company was, was pretty scary. But after a certain point in time, you come to recognize like, I, I don't have <laughs> enough to pay this back. Like, sure, I'll go personally guarantee myself for a million or $2 million or $3 million worth of oh debt. My God. Uh, because if this doesn't work, it's just a straight bankruptcy. Like there's, there's yeah. nothing, yeah. there's nothing left. Uh, and when, when did you have your first kind of uh, big win, like biggest client? Yeah. So, so Blue Box started in a three that big win was was probably 06, sort of three years in uh, to 07. And we had built a relationship with a, another development firm that was building websites for MTV. Mm. Um, and, and somehow we convinced MTV 
to work with us and was like, I think there were three of us at the company at the time, maybe, might have been two. Uh, but that was the that was the first big contract. And that's really, if you if we go look at the trajectory of that business, that was the inflection point uh, where, where everything really started to take off. And at the height, um, how big did you get? Yeah, so uh, I bootstrapped that business for nine years. And then ultimately, we raised about $22 million in venture. And the company was acquired by IBM in June of 2015. So right at the point of acquisition, we were about... 60, 65 uh, employees. Yeah. And when you um, got acquired, like, was that kind of the goal or wh- what was the goal? And maybe you were 18 and not really thinking that way, but um, yeah, you know, I, mean, I remember, what, what, I remember reading about it, Jesse, and I was like, Holy my God, IBM. So huge. Yeah. And were you being courted or did you put it out there that you were open to being acquired? How does that work? Yeah. So it's certainly when I started the company again, it was like, I, I just needed to pay back <laughs> I needed to pay back the debt that I'd taken. And ironically, to do that, I ended up taking more debt. So uh, bootstrapped the, the company for nine years. And then at some point, I became to re- realize uh, like the, the economics just weren't working. And it's sort of like for every new dollar of uh, revenue we were collecting, our expenses just kept going up uh, sort of in a linear fashion. And so came to realize we needed some other mechanism to make the, the economics of the company work. And uh, the, the thought was we could go raise venture uh, capital and use that to build a, effectively a product using all of the technology that, that we had uh, built to power the, the business. And the hope was that sort of that product would, would make the company valuable and that we could drive an acquisition uh, from, from that product or uh, of that product. And it, fortunately, that's how it played out. Uh, you know, the, the blue box story, it's, it's, I mean, we could do an entire podcast just on, on that. Uh, it was a incredible roller coaster with, uh, you know, two near bankruptcies, uh, embezzlement, uh, executive fraud, like all kinds of prob- uh, problems and challenges. And, and so it was sort of the, the, at the very end, it was 2014, end of 2013, beginning of 2014, uh, I basically had come to the conclusion that, that I was not the right person to continue to run the, the firm. Like we, as an experiential learner, you, you learn by making mistakes and that costs money in a business. And we were, we we're out of money uh, for me to continue to learn on the job. And so uh, effectively concluded that the right path was to bring in a, a third party or external CEO who had uh, more experience than, than I did, uh, could help, uh, help us make fewer mistakes. And, that was actually the, the impetus for the sale. Uh, so sort of bringing him in, began to, to signal to the market that uh, we may be interested in an acquisition. And, and it started off this whole set of conversations that really lasted about 18 months. And they sort of started about three months after after he joined and, and sort of in, in the background went on his, his entire tenure with us uh, until we, we sold the company. Yeah. And what was that process like? Did, were you learning on the job there too? Because if like today someone came and said, hey, I'm going to acquire you, like for my company, it's IBM. I would feel a little bit in over my head, like how do I make sure that this uh, is the right result and I can continue to protect my team and my culture that I've worked so hard to build. And also like knowing you, the little that I do, I would imagine that it's scary to be like, I'm, I don't wanna be part of the big bureaucracy of like a IBM. Yeah, it, I mean, it was a, the entire experience was uh, one of the biggest roller coasters I, I think I, I could ever have imagined. Uh, so it, it started again in, in the summer of 14, and we were approached then uh, to be acquired, did the whole song and dance with diligence and conversations with a with number of firms, and ultimately ended up with two term sheets, uh, and neither of which were, were sort of attractive enough to warrant moving forward. They, they just, for 
um, sort of once you once you calculate all the overhead of paying back the investors, uh, it's like you basically would have ended up with so I mean a life changing amount of money regardless regardless but um, but not kind of what you envision for. Uh, right, especially when you worked so long. Yeah, twelve not years. Like it's a, yeah, it's not like it's a three-year deal. It's twelve years of your life. Yep, exactly. So, from that, we we ended up raising a, another round of funding and kind of pressing ahead uh, over 2014, 2015, uh, and then in February of fifteen, so sort of the conversation spun spun back up. Uh, you know, it was I think it was a hundred days from the very first conversation with IBM to close, uh, which I believe uh, at least fast. that. It, to that point was the fastest deal IBM had done. Uh, and it was probably a hundred of the most intense days I've, I've ever had an entrepreneurial experience. Like we, you know, they sent a diligence request list for documents. And I believe it was something of the order of 1500 questions. Um, some of which are sort of yes or no, or not applicable. And some of which are, are things like provide every contract the firm has ever signed in its history. Uh, so I think in total, we, we created 85, 86,000 pages of documentation um, in, in about three weeks in response to that wow. list. These are all uh, things people don't think about. You just read like a GeekWire article and you're like, amazing. Hope it went well, Jesse. <laughs> right. Yep. IBM sent out 65 people uh, to due diligence. Keep in mind, our entire company was 60 and we had 17 of those 60 working on the deal. Uh, so we, we had rented out the basement of the West End and it was pretty funny because they had all all their different business units, uh, you know, separated into different conference rooms, and our sales and marketing guys would be jumping back and forth from the sales, you know, the sales conference room to the marketing conference room. Everybody's just, you know, you wear so many hats in an entrepreneurial endeavor. Of uh, that that was that uh, sixty-five people on-site, three-day in-person diligence was uh, absolutely insane. Um, and I remember getting to the, the very end, and the the gentleman that was running the, the corp dev team, he came back. And he said, the very last morning, you know, we really appreciate all your time. Can you explain to me one more time what you really do? Like, what does the company do? And we're like, oh, no, <laughs> this is all for not. Uh, oh, my gosh. But, but we pulled it out. And we, yeah, we pulled it out. And, and, and sort of in, in every acquisition, you, you talk to anybody that, that's gone through a transaction, it'll tell you that the deal died multiple times sort of before it, it finally happened. Yeah. And the, even the, the morning we were supposed to close, I think I was at the office until three or four in the morning. I went home, I slept for an hour and then came back, I think at five uh, or six. Uh, and and it like it almost died on the vine that, that morning. And there's sort of all these little issues that that can crop up at the very end. And uh, Oh my God. <laughs> what, what would you, what advice would you give someone who's going through this right now? Like what did you learn from that experience? You know, I think... It's very easy. So the, the mistake I made the first go around in 2014 uh, was was sort of having this this belief and vision that the, the deal was done before it was done. And so right, you, you begin to get into these processes, and certainly before valuation numbers are, are talked about, uh, you can sort of think think about your life uh, post deal, uh, whether that's sort of the, the the things you can build within the company or it's the things you can do personally. Uh, sort of your your brain just naturally goes there. Uh, and when when deals fall apart, as they inevitably do, that that can be incredibly traumatic. Yeah. Um, and, th and that summer of 14, when those deals fell apart, uh, that was one of the hardest summers I, I think I've had. 
uh, mm-hmm. from, from just a sort of a mental health perspective. Yeah. Uh, it, and so in a way that like you were having kind of anxiety and like panic or more like depression or more kind of apathy, like burnout? Like all, all of the above. Uh, yeah. You know, I think when you go through those acquisition processes, you're sort of, it's like the sprint at the end of the finish line. You're sort of putting everything you've got in the tank into it and then to have it fall apart. And I like, it was all of that. It was, it was burnout. It was anxiety. It was depression. Uh, and lonely, I'm sure loneliness too. Cause like, who am I talking to about this? A, I have to keep things kind of quiet and B like, you know, you don't want to burden your wife who would probably normally be your go-to and your friends are like, really, you know, it's so hard to know who you could talk to. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was probably the hardest piece about all of it. And, and really for me, it was being a member of EO at the time entrepreneurs organization. Like that's what, what saved me just having that, that cohort of, of folks yeah. that, that at least uh, listen and, and at least can listen from a place of, of sort of, uh, of, of understanding. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. You can't, like your, your friends you don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or your friends get, are like, your friends might be like, who aren't as successful might be like, wah, wah, like cry me a river. Like you might make millions of dollars or you might not, but you're still this kick-ass CEO. You know, it's just hard to know what people are thinking. And, um, and at the same time, the stress and the anxiety are real and they need to be validated. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the, sort of the point we were talking about at the beginning. It's like, you, you never know sort of the, the battles that everybody fights behind the scenes and it, it can seem like things are so easy or have gone so well for, for so many people yet the reality is sort of everybody's fought their own struggles uh, totally. through, through their whole journey and it's just uh, you know th- i think particularly in the startup world like this is a this is the result of the way the tech media has covered companies for so long it's oh, like totally they cover they cover the big funding rounds they cover the acquisitions they cover all the, the great top five percent of the things yeah. and uh, behind the scenes, behind all those curtains, everybody's having the same set of problems. Nobody's business is perfect. Everything's always in this state of, of nearly falling apart. Uh, and it's sort of that, it took a long time for me to realize that that reality is something that, that everybody deals with. Totally. Uh, but it's not talked about. It, it isn't as much as it should be. I completely agree. So what was part of that um, acquisition deal that you had to stay on for a bit? And um, how was that transitioning your team and integrating them? Um, and I guess you ultimately left. Was that part of the deal that you would just kind of stand for a little bit? Yeah. So um, I, I had an arrangement to stay for two years. Um, I actually ended up staying for two and a half. And the first year and a half, I worked with the integration of, of Blue Box into the broader IBM cloud ecosystem. So when, when we closed that deal, I was so excited. And I thought there was a massive opportunity for what the technology and the product we had built inside of IBM. You know, I thought IBM could help with, with distribution. Our problem always was as a Seattle, small Seattle startup, the companies we were selling to, you know, I think had had concern around sort of the viability of our business. It was we were selling a private cloud product. So it went oftentimes to banking companies or insurance or healthcare companies, you know, much bigger organizations than than we were. And there was always some question around, you know, is is this company going to exist? So right. it, being within IBM, I was like, okay, that, that's a solved problem. Now we're going to have this opportunity to sell the, this product to a, a much larger audience. And the, the challenge that I came to realize uh, sort of very, very quickly thereafter is that being inside of IBM, yes, you certainly have relationships with those clients, but there are, there are hundreds of products uh, that IBM has to sell to those uh, clients and uh, sort of getting the sales team interested and excited about what, what you have like is, is almost impossible and budgets are set based on the success of the sales teams. So it's a chicken and egg thing. Yeah, absolutely. 
And so that, that was our biggest problem. We could never get the sales team sort of trained well enough yeah. on the product uh, to actually go sell it. And as a result of that, numbers got missed. And then you get resources cut instead of invested in. And it's sort of this downward spiral pretty, pretty quickly. And that was part of your earnout is like success of the rollout of the integration. Well, we, yeah, so we were fortunate. We, we negotiated a deal that did not include a performance-based earnout. Oh, thank yeah. God for you. Because it's like, you don't even know what you don't know. And then you get into this huge bureaucratic company and you're like, oh, I didn't even think that maybe I wouldn't have resources behind me. What I would have thought is that maybe some of your clients would be thinking as much as the first round was, hey, are they going to be around? Once you're with an IBM, it might be like, hey, am I going to get any attention? And, you know, do I even want to be working with IBM? So big. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think we had pretty good customer retention after the deal. Uh, and a lot of that, we, we, we were able to staff up the team in a pretty considerable way, uh, which, which was great. We got to do things and, and build product in, in a way that we, we didn't have access to prior. Yeah. Uh, we also had to build it sort of in, inside of the uh, uh, regulatory constructs that, that IBM is required to release products under. So a, a lot of benefit and a lot of challenge. Um, right. Is, is sort of within that environment. And was it at IBM that you started to kind of dabble in this whole crypto world? It was, yeah. So so after that first year and a half of trying to integrate the product, um, ultimately it was decided that that the product effectively wasn't going to receive the, the attention or focus uh, that it had at the beginning. And I started to go look for other roles inside of IBM. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for, for that firm. I think it's a phenomenal uh, sort of institution uh, so much of, of what IBM research has created has led to sort of everything we have today, right? Like they, there is a lot of history there um, and it was neat to be a, a part of that. And so uh, just because sort of our, our product didn't work out, I wanted to see what other opportunities I, I could find within the, the broader organization. So I went over in 2017, was working with IBM Ventures and the the hope or the plan there was to launch an accelerator uh, focused on, on crypto. So uh, we had this belief that uh, IBM sort of struggled in the startup community, right? They didn't have the same reputation that, that an Amazon or, or a Microsoft had. And my thought was there was an opportunity to build this unique accelerator that would match startups with, with IBM clients. So IBM clients are always looking for, for innovative solutions to their problems and startups looking for introductions to, to prospective clients. And if we could act as sort of that matchmaker, it felt like a way to build an accelerator that was quite different from, from what else was in market. Yeah. So, so my job over 17 was to research the crypto space and, and prep to launch that. How, again, another thing that's like, I know you're an experiential learner, but I have, we have several crypto clients. I've had guest speakers come in. I've listened to podcasts. It's hard for me to continually uh, attempt to wrap my head around this whole crypto blockchain world. And I know that I'm going to, I don't want to miss the boat. Like, I feel like that's how everyone feels. Um, and so you left and you took some time, right? No, I took no time. Took, <laughs> Actually, well, because I was trying to figure that out. I'm like, okay, so you leave IBM and then was there a gap there be between leaving and starting Strix Leviathan? Nope. No, uh, sort of the, the idea for Strix was a nights and weekends project over Q4 oh. of, of 17. Uh, Got and it. Then, yeah, so I, I left uh, New Year's Eve uh, of 18 and started Strix sort of on the first. Oh, jeez. How did you name it? It's such a long one. I'm like, I feel like I got a tongue twister there. Yeah. Where did the name think, come from? Uh, so Strix Leviathan, it's, it's effectively an, an owl and an octopus. Uh, oh, okay. An owl is sort of always watching, always listening. And an octopus is sort of big brain, multitasking. Uh, and our, our thesis 
I mean, I, I think everybody sort of shares, almost everybody shares a similar perspective on this asset class that, that you do. It's, it's too hard. Um, and it's a function of everything being named the same thing. It's a function of this foreign language that the industry has created. It's a function of the velocity that, that the industry moves. Um, but it's also like the industry has opaque fundamental value. And it's not that there's no fundamental value, but the, the reason you believe Bitcoin is worth something and I believe it's worth something are probably very different. Like we can't point to any, any formula or there's no price to earnings ratio that you can say, oh, it's, it's overvalued or undervalued. And so my belief is that as, as a result of that, most of the, the price action here is behavioral in nature. It's fear and greed that move these markets. And if that was accurate, then those, the, the belief was that those are patterns that repeat themselves in, in data and that we can identify those patterns using algorithms. And, and effectively, we could trade a portfolio uh, really with the objective of providing a better risk-adjusted return. So certainly, if, if you went in 2017, and even if you bought Bitcoin at the peak uh, you know, in December, you, you're still up today a meaningful amount of money. I didn't want necessarily to have to, to do that. I wanted, I didn't want to have to sort of sit through an 85% drawdown with the hope that these assets recover. And, and the objective with Strix was to, to build an algorithmic trading firm that solved that problem. So it's an, it's an automated crypto advisor um, kind of fund. That's Strix Leviathan. That's the business. Yeah, so when we started Strix, that we came to recognize there was no technology for anybody doing sort of sophisticated investment management in crypto. Uh, it was a very uh, blank canvas. And so we built that whole software suite. And that does everything for us from collecting data from all the different exchanges. It allows us to design all the algorithms, to run the algorithms uh, sort of against our live portfolio, to execute all of our trades, to reconcile everything, to generate statements, sort of any and everything you need to run a hedge fund in the digital asset space we, we built into this technology platform. And then on top of that, we started a, a traditional hedge fund, uh, just like, like any other hedge fund, but it's focused on, on digital assets. Uh, and so we, we ran that, that business for, for the next three years. And then, and then um, you took the technology. Tell me about Makara and how that whole works. Because as I was researching, I'm like, okay, Strix Leviathan, and then it spun out to Makara. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly right. So, so we used that technology for the next three years to run the fund. And the fund has done phenomenally well. I'm incredibly proud of what we built there. But we've, we've come to recognize, so as a, as a hedge fund, and, and we're regulated as a 3C7 fund, which means we can only accept money from what's considered a qualified purchaser. Which so means like what, like a certain amount of investable assets? Yep, five, 5 million in investable assets and up. So mm -hmm. it's like, it goes way beyond accredited investor. Yeah, and, and what's the minimum investment? It's $100,000 okay. on, on the fund. And so the audit, the auditing process or the regulatory and legal kind of process of valuing a, a fund that's in crypto is different than like a typical fund. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. So that was a big part of the technology platform. Like we had to go build a lot of those those pieces. Uh, those any fund that operates in this space works with auditors. They work with what's called a third party administrator, and mm -hmm. that's the that's the company that goes and uh, effectively verifies the books and, and values all the holdings. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but to, to even work with firms like that, you need to have sort of your own your own sets of records, uh, yes. and, and that's where all of the software that, that we built came into play. And so can you say the size of the fund or is that confidential? Yeah, we, we unfortunately cannot share that. You don't share that. And so when you're trying to access investors, are you going through wealth advisories? Are you going, um, is it all individual investors or? Yeah, so, so on, the, on the strict side, what's beneath there, I mean, when, when we started, it was effectively friends of the firm, friends of me, Jesse. Uh, 
And over the last year, that's really transitioned now to be family offices, to be uh, foundations, to be fund of funds. So it's sort of this, this institutional investor profile uh, has really transitioned. But, but all of this, it's like, this was the genesis for the Macar idea, right? Like the, the strict side of the business, we're, we're incredibly proud of what we've built there, but it, it is only available to a very specific subset of the investing public. Right. And we had so many conversations over the last three years with, with folks that said exactly what you just said, that I don't want to miss the boat, but I don't understand what's happening here. Right. Like, I don't want to miss the boat, but even if I didn't have or have the money, I don't know that I want to put in hundred or $250,000 because it feels still you know, a little scary and a little random. So I have two questions on that. Well, now with Makara, the minimum investment is just $50, right? Right. So yeah, so that was like, we basically said, all right, how can we take everything that we've built and, and create a product that's accessible to everybody and that solves that that access of uh, that access issue that, that makes investing in this asset class a simpler experience, that, that makes it a more friendly experience. Uh, we, we really wanted to borrow on kind of the, the notion of a mutual fund or an ETF and mm-hmm. so when, when you go buy a thematic ETF, like say you buy a banking ETF, you don't, you don't necessarily need to know all the nuances of, of every equity that's held in, inside of that ETF. You just know that a manager has selected assets that they deemed uh, appropriate and they, they've sort of packaged them up for you um, and, and that that will, will give you exposure to that sort of segment of the market. And nothing like that really existed for crypto. You had to go and figure out all those individual pieces. Um, and I think it's going to be a very long time a very long time before we, we have true ETFs in crypto. So it, the question was, how can we build something like that? How can we create this, this basket uh, of assets that simplifies uh, sort of selection, that simplifies uh, access and, and make that accessible to everybody? And, and that was the ma- genesis of the Macar idea. And so if I was to go in today, I do have the app downloaded. So if I go in, I know I have to be four years old, which it looks like, because I'm like, it said, you know, open to four, four plus. So I'm like, I can get my yeah, kids see, on. See, you have to be 18. And this is funny. So when we launched- Well, I know it says four plus. App, I'm like, well, wait, that can't be right. I know you have to be 18. Yeah. So when we very first launched the app, um, we had marked it as, as 18 plus for download. And then we came to realize like, okay, that's actually used for adult content in the app stores. Like that's the wrong classification. Well, and so it says four plus and so my, my kids or I want to teach them. So let's yep. pretend that I'm sitting with them or your kids and we go on and we put in $50. Can I specify which crypto or just it's going into a broad, like where is it going and what are the differences between all the different, and this may be like a six hour podcast, but I am curious, <laughs> where does that $50 go? Yeah. So if, if you, if you didn't have Makara and you went to say Coinbase today, to go make this investment, you'd be given a list of sort of 60 or so different assets. And it'd be up to you to sort of figure out what are, what are all these and they're all named peculiar things like what do they do. So we created this notion of a basket and a basket is a collection of assets and a, and a strategy. And it's really designed to, to make exposure to different segments of this market easier. So we have uh, four that are available on the platform today. One's called the universe basket. This has actually been the most popular. And it's everything that we have available on the platform. It's sort of the S&P equivalent. So if you just want broad-based exposure uh, to crypto, you, you can put money into this basket and, and it uses a risk parity weighting mechanism. So every quarter, uh, it effectively reweights the, the basket, uh, designing to sort of equalize risk of any of the individual holdings uh, in, in that basket. Uh, so that, that's kind of, and that was surprising to us that that would be the most popular, but the people have flocked there uh, the most. And then the, the other three are sort of thematic access. So there's a, a decentralized finance basket. So that's a subsector of, of this asset class. Uh, there is what we call the blue chip basket. So the largest assets 
uh, by market cap. And then what we, we have uh, what's called the inflation hedge basket. So that's just holding Bitcoin and tokenized gold uh, for folks that, that may be most concerned about uh, in inflation. And so people are holding it. And then what has the return been on average or has there not been enough time to see? Yeah, so, so each of those baskets, we're able to effectively show you the historical returns because they're, they're indexes. So we can say, here's the construction of the index and we can go run that historically. And, and that, that's all posted on, on the website. They, obviously, the, the last year has been very favorable to, to the crypto markets. Mm -hmm. What uh, is it so on average? And then if there is kind of a return of, of interest, can that just go right back into the basket? Yeah, so so these uh, products don't don't earn interest. They're, you're just holding a, a, a sort of underlying the investment. You're not buying shares in anything. You're, you're actually physically buying each individual asset. So if the basket holds 10 different things, uh, Makara buys those 10 assets for you on, on your behalf. And, and so your, your return in the basket is effectively the return of how those assets perform in, in the market. Mm. Uh, sort of each basket has its own return profile. I think that the universe basket is uh, two or 300% uh, return over the last year. Uh, but again, that's certainly in, it's in a very favorable market condition. Yeah, of course. Uh, these things can go down just as much as, as they can go up. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it's the, the the objective there again was how can we how can we get people because we think people invest in this asset class not only because the gains are compelling but because they're they're curious, right? And totally. Sort of that that curiosity that there are so many segments or sectors now to this asset class, so people could be curious. Um, about decentralized finance, they could be curious about Web 3.0, sort of building this new this new place to run applications. They could be mm -hmm. curious about the metaverse, like that's been a very hot topic lately. So bringing together things like NFTs and gaming and sort of digital. I've been uh, hearing a lot about that. Yeah. yeah. So I know you're not trying to give investment advice. That's a disclaimer for sure. Yep. <laughs> but I am curious if um, you have a sense of kind of what the global impact of crypto. Is, is going to be in the future. And also when people are investing on average, like what percentage of their portfolio are they putting into this? Are they all just kind of dipping a toe in? Or are there people who are like around you who are quadrupling down on this asset class? Yeah, so I think I'll answer the second bit. I mean, it's, it's a personal preference and everybody's doing sort of what, what's been comfortable to them. We certainly know people that, that have put uh, uncomfortable percentages of their, their net wealth. And we know people, I mean, a lot of the Makara clients have, are just experimenting. They're beginning to kind of understand that the broader landscape I mean, that's the neat thing with a, a platform like ours uh, is that it, it makes it very simple. And so almost half of our clients uh, become repeat depositors. So they start with, with a small amount of money and they just add a little bit to their portfolio on a regular basis, uh, which we think is a, it makes a, a great amount of sense of how to participate in, in this asset class because it, you never know. I mean, here we could go up tomorrow, we could go down tomorrow. And so yeah. sort of just adding consistently feels like a, a very uh, uh, responsible way to, to participate. Uh, you know, in, in terms of where this asset class is going in, in general, you know, if I go back to, to 2017, there was sort of this existential question, like, does, does, this, does this asset class continue to exist? Like, is there a reason for, for crypto to exist after sort of its, its big uh, pullback in, in 2018? And that, what, what I have come to recognize is that these sort of the use cases, the applications that are being built on top of these networks, that there are... There are fundamentally like there are applications that have been developed here versus kind of everything that was was fluff. Uh, it was all noise in 2017. Like the the world of decentralized finance uh, has created true uh, true use uh, use cases for uh, these underlying blockchains. The world of NFTs. Uh, like we're we're seeing all these brand new things be developed, and uh, as a result of that, we've seen sort of this big shift in institutional interest. Right, Visa just bought their first NFT. 
uh, over the last couple uh, weeks. Yeah. Uh, so the question that, that we ask ourselves is like, does this go away? And I think this entire asset class, the way I like to think about it, it's more akin to, to liquid angel investing. Like this asset class in my eyes will exist, but to say any one individual asset in this asset class will be the, the most successful, I, I think and that's sort of a fool's errand to try to pick uh, any individual thing. But if you can agree that, that by uh, in aggregate, the asset class will be successful and you can diversify across yeah. sort of a, a breadth of the asset class, uh, then it's like you're making a sort of a, a, a venture bet. Uh, I think this is it's so brilliant. It's brilliant from the perspective of the fund and even more brilliant from an accessibility standpoint um, that you've decided to build Makara because I'm just, my head is always spinning on this. Like, you know, a lot of people are trying to get in and this is the perfect, perfect um, blend of someone who wants to take some risk and also get in on this, but also slightly um, mitigate the risk by not kind of doubling down on just one of the 60 on like Coinbase. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other exciting thing for us uh, about Makar is this educational component, right? We want people to understand what's happening in this asset class. Mm -hmm. And there's a CNBC article that came out two or three months ago that said one in three investors don't understand what they're holding here. And I think that number is probably much, much higher. Right? Give me a quick little like, I don't even know what you would say to your kids if, if they're like, what does daddy do? <laughs> what does daddy do? The kids, the kids think dad trades fake internet money, magic internet <laughs> money. Uh, it's magic. It's like monopoly money. Yeah, uh, you know, how, how does that, that that's the, the most exciting piece to all of this is that each one of these projects, you know, of this 12,000 different projects that exist here or of the, the 45 different uh, projects that we support on Makara, they're all doing different things. And so our objective is trying to distill down uh, sort of each individual asset into easy to explain language to distill down sort of each broader uh, thematic area into language that, that's uh, clear to understand. And I think one of the, the challenges that this asset class has had is that all of the educational content that's been out there assumes some kind of base level knowledge. Totally, like, with like describing crypto by using words that have the word crypto in it. Right. And I'm like, well, that doesn't help. But what, right. how do you describe like blockchain and crypto like as, a, as an asset class? Like I've learned and I, I, I feel like the only way you know something is if you can explain it back. Yeah. And I always understand it when I'm in the moment and then I'm like, but I can't re-explain it. <laughs> Yeah, so blockchain in my eyes, it's, it's about building trust without a, a single central party, right? So the way a bank works today, I go deposit money in the bank and I trust that the bank is keeping my money and is, is doing it safe, but that's based on trust. I have to actually trust the bank. And what blockchain has done is for the first time created this notion of, of provable, provable digital scarcity. So I don't have to trust a bank, I, I know, with, with proof on the blockchain that, that my assets or my tokens or, or sort of whatever I'm holding uh, is there and that I have access to them. And it's, it's the concept of the blockchain, that technology that for the first time has, has made that possible. Before that, you, you could never, like think about it as if you had a, a picture, you took a picture of your family vacation. Prior to, to blockchain, you could never say there was only one copy of that file because somebody could make a copy and, and share it around. You could email it to other people. And, but you can't, you can't do that with uh, assets that are held on on a blockchain, they are they are provably uh, scarce. They are uh, you can prove the ownership of them, and, and that's the fundamental innovation. It, it makes a lot of sense, and it also is it also doesn't. <laughs> so Jesse, tell me, um, well, two things. If I've got, uh, how do I sell crypto through the app? Like if I want out, I, I've now got my fifty dollars. I've I've made my two hundred percent, and now I'm like I need to go buy something. Can I? 
pull my crypto off the app? Yep, absolutely. So uh, there are two ways to do it. So one, we have a US dollar basket. So if you just want to be out of the markets and, and hold dollars for a period of time, you can just move everything into that basket and it takes it out of crypto. And um, the other option is just to make a withdrawal. Uh, so the, the whole platform supports uh, withdrawals back to a, a bank account or to a, a Bitcoin or Ethereum address. Um, so we wanted to make sort of leaving the platform withdrawing your capital just as easy as, as, uh, as joining. Yeah, that's great. And there's no delay. You can do that like right away. Yeah, so it works uh, in, in a similar nature to a mutual fund. So when you put your withdrawal request in, there's a once a day trading window. So Macara goes and will exit your position and then we'll make, make that withdraw for you. Uh, and then that, that capital will be sent back to your bank account. So in aggregate, I think it can be sort of two or three days just based on, I mean, this is the irony of the traditional banking system. And the, the funniest thing to me about, about the entire Macara project is that the, the hardest part for us here has been getting money on and off the platform. The traditional mm -hmm. banking system is incredibly difficult to interact with uh, and has been sort of the, the biggest thorn in our side uh, from from day one. So hmm. sort of the uh, the delays that exist are, are not because we we can't make things go faster. It's because of the traditional the way the traditional totally. banking system works. Whole bunch of bureaucracy and crazy red tape. And it's a little seems a little bit antiquated too. And you're trying to like run this like very um, progressive, innovative business. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it makes. And it, how many makes, how many people do you have? Is it just the Strix Leviathan team coming over, or do you have a whole technology? I'm sure you have a whole tech. I saw you have a, first of all, I saw that you have a lot of people that worked with you at IBM. Um, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Sadie, my co-founder and I, uh, she actually worked together with me at, at Blue Box prior to the acquisition. So she was our controller at, uh, at Blue Box. Uh, and then we've, we've got a number of other folks. Uh, yeah, from, which from says there, a lot about you. Yeah, clearly yeah. your leadership style works because people are following you, right? <laughs> uh, I hope so. And then on the, on the strict side, so there's nine, nine folks uh, that, that are focused on, on that vehicle. And then we've got about 15 uh, folks focused on the Macara product. Mm -hmm. And how have you funded it? Have you self-funded it? Are you raising money or how's that going to, yeah, so how are you going to scale it? Yep. So when we started Strix, uh, we raised uh, a seed round back in 2018 and 2019. Uh, and that funded sort of the development of all the, the technology platform. Uh, that business is now operationally profitable. Uh, and so it's helping fund Macara. And then we've raised... Uh, some additional capital at the beginning of this year uh, to, to get the initial product off the ground. Awesome. And what are the plans? Like, what are the big picture plans for this business? And you're not 18 anymore. So, you, <laughs> and you've been, you've been through it, right? You've been through more than most people your age. So you're well equipped to be thinking about where to take this business. And you're, um, you're in a unique position to kind of grow something crazy here, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the first, if I look back at everything we've built, this is the first business that, that I can really put my finger on and say, this could be a billion dollar business. Like I, we, I would we feel that. Touch, I mean, I can't imagine can, how it couldn't be. Sorry. Yeah, that, that we can touch just a huge audience. Uh, you know, I, I think if we truly do believe that, that this asset class uh, will, will be a material part of people's portfolios, and, and I do believe that, uh, then making, making exposure, making it simple to participate, I, that is a huge opportunity. Uh, and nobody else has, has made it simple yet. It's still too hard everywhere else you go. Uh, and so sort of the, the prospective clientele, it's just, it's a massive number of people. Uh, and, and really, it's exciting to us to kind of unlock or open the door to this, uh, to something that, that's too hard and it keeps too many people out. Yeah, I'm super excited to watch you grow this thing. It's going to be so killer. I love it. How are you balancing it all? Like, how do you keep your mental health in checks, you know? take time for the boat, take time for the kids and your wife. Yeah. I mean, that's probably been the, that's been the hardest part about it this year. Um, and I, I, that's, I, if I would not feel like I am succeeding 
in in the balance uh, this this year in particular. Uh, it's been, you know, I think you forget how hard the very beginnings of things are. Uh, it just it, you wouldn't do it again if you remembered how hard it is. And and for me, the most fascinating piece has been the, the challenge to build sort of a mobile app. That's a new domain for me. Um, and then something focused on on a consumer, right? The the audience um, and, and trying to keep everybody happy. I'm I'm a big customer satisfaction believer. I I, I want our clients to be thrilled uh, with our with our product. And so I try to do any and everything we can to uh, to kind of keep that satisfaction high. And uh, when you're at the very beginning here, that's a significant amount of work. Uh, so it's it's been a long and tiring year. And yeah. Well, you do have great reviews. I did read them. I think you've got like a four point eight out of five in a in a business that would lend itself to all sorts of chaos and and people getting confused and blaming the company. And I can see that going south. And you have great reviews, actually. Yeah, we're we're really excited. And there's there's so much we can continue to improve and build and add. Um, the next couple of months will be be really neat. Yeah, I'm excited to watch. Okay, my ultimate question for you is what fuels you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I, I think to some extent it's this notion of, of competition or, or, or winning, like it's this desire to uh, to achieve, to prove something, uh, to prove that you can you can build or grow a business, um, and and more so just to, just to myself. You know, particularly this sort of second go around. You know, I think there, there's always from an entrepreneurial perspective this question of like, was it luck or skill? Um, yeah, and it, it's always luck. Like. <laughs> There's, totally. Uh, you, you can have the most skill in the world, and, and without kind of all of the uh, the stars aligning, uh, I think you you can struggle. But um, yeah, this 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 desire to to do it again and, and to prove uh, to prove to myself that, that there's the the ability to um, to build something great and to build something that, that can uh, impact and, and benefit people. At the end of the day, I think people need to think about this. It's a long term investment. It's you're you're investing in an entire asset class that uh, that really is. I think it will be a big part of the future. Uh, and so if people go in with that, with that mindset, I think that there is great opportunity. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Small disclaimer for this podcast the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are for informational and educational purposes only and may change at any time based on the market or other conditions and may not come to pass. Listeners to this podcast should be aware of the real risks in investing, including the risk of loss of your investment. There is liquidity risk, and there is no guarantee that you'll be able to exit your investment upon immediate request through the redemption program. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investments or strategies discussed on this podcast do not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs. This material is not to be construed as or relied upon as investment advice or recommendations does not constitute a solicitation to buy or sell securities and should not be considered legal investment or tax advice.